Good morning, Love Chapel Hill. So good to see you today. How's your morning going so far? Wonderful. Come on. Good. Good. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 22 today. And uh, over these last two months together, we've been revisiting some of the core passages that have shaped us as a church family. You good? All right, let me know if I need to change something with the uh, So we've been revisiting some of the core passages that have really shaped us as a church family. And uh, that's what we're going to do again today. From the beginning of Love Chapel Hill. Uh, we started meeting outside 13 years ago and uh, for our very first worship gatherings. And uh, from that very beginning, we had a core prayer. It's from Isaiah chapter 61. And this beautiful statement that Isaiah makes, this prophetic statement that he makes about people who are deeply rooted in the heart and mind and soul of God. And his prayer is this, that they would be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. And as we were starting out as a church plant, uh, being rooted here in this place, that was our opening prayer. And uh, throughout our time together, we've consistently come back to some of these core passages that are good soil for us to be rooted into in order for God to cultivate us through the power of the Holy Spirit, through the love of the Father, through the way of Jesus, to become like a tree planted by streams of water, bearing fruit in season, whose leaf does not wither, Psalm 1. Oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor, Isaiah 61. And one of those core passages that we've come back to time and time again, and it won't surprise you that this is where we're going to land together today, is in Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40, the great commandment, when Jesus gives the great commandment. So I invite you to turn there with me today. And uh, if it's okay with y'all, I'm just going to go ahead and say up front that... Uh, to remove any pressure of trying to have to find something profound to say today. We're letting Jesus have all the all the profound words. All right, that's how we roll here. That's what we've done over and over again. So we're going to keep that pattern going today. All right, we're going to focus in on what he has to say. We're going to let his be the voice that we're listening to. Matthew chapter 22, verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with a question. We're going to stop right there, okay? Obviously, we are jumping into the middle of a story here in this passage. Already from these first couple words, we're getting the sense that there's a story that's already been flowing along, and we're stepping in okay and so we're going to pause for a moment and get our orientation here in that context should i move to a different mic okay 
Hello. Keep going. Is that good? Can you hear? Okay. Can y'all hear that? Yeah. Okay. Awesome. Good. Great. Okay. Thank you to everyone whose faces were telling me that that mic was not working. <laughs> thank you for that. You were too kind to like flag me down, but those faces showed it. All right. so that's Great. So as I was saying here, uh, the we can tell that we're already midstream in a story, right? You can tell that something has been happening before and we're kind of stepping into the middle of that. So we want to do what we always do and get our bearings, get our orientation around that and understand the context behind what is happening here. In Matthew chapter 22, uh, Jesus gets tested three separate times by the religious leaders with a question. Uh, and the questions are designed to be a trap. And so the one that we're looking at today is the third. And so you can see this progression building in them. And so we're at the kind of climax moment of Jesus being tested with these questions by these religious leaders. They're all designed to make Jesus stumble, to either get the people to turn against him or to get the authorities to turn against him. Basically, it's trying to make him trip up and uh, to, to, to undercut him and to expose him. And so that's what's happening here. Uh, the first question that Jesus gets in Matthew chapter 22 uh, is a question about taxes. All right. And it's this question about paying taxes to Caesar. You may be familiar with this trap that gets set for Jesus. The, the religious authorities come against him and they bring this question and they try to flatter him. And they say, we know you're a wise teacher. You have a we know that you're teaching with the wisdom of God, so please shed light on, on this uh, for us. And they ask him this question about paying taxes to Caesar. And they say, which is right for us to give our money in taxes to Caesar or for us to give our money to God at the temple? Which should we do with our money? You can already see that that's a false dichotomy that's getting set up there. And Jesus, in his brilliance, recognizes exactly what they're trying to do, recognizes the heart of this trap, and carves out this brilliant and better narrow way between these two sides that get set up by his enemies. And so they want him to either say uh, that you should give your taxes to Caesar, which would make all of the people upset, because they're living under the oppression of the Roman Empire. We know that at this time in history, Israel is not a sovereign nation, but instead is this conquered nation and is living under the oppressive reign of the Roman Empire. And one of those key forms of, of oppression that Rome used against the people was this heavy burden of taxation. And so all of the people felt the weight of that. And so if Jesus says, give your taxes to Caesar, he's endorsing Caesar. And that is going to be hurtful to the people who are living under that burden. But if Jesus says, don't give your taxes to Caesar, then obviously the Roman Empire, he's setting himself up against the Roman Empire. So there's this very clear trap and they think that they are 
wise in setting it. But Jesus in his brilliance says, who has a coin? Pull out the coin. Tell me whose face is on it. And they say, Caesar's. And he says, well then, since Caesar's image is stamped on that coin, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but give to God what belongs to God. The depth here is Jesus is saying that Caesar's image is stamped on the coin and that's his realm and that's his treasure. But God's image is stamped on you. That humanity is created in the image of God and because the image of God is stamped on you, give to God what belongs to God. Give to God your whole selves and recognize that God sees you as his great treasure. Brilliant in the way Jesus answers this question. But what we have to see here is that Jesus is not just trying to avoid a trap, but he's revealing the truth. He's not just avoiding a trap, he's revealing the truth. And we see the genius of Jesus at work. Jesus gets a second question. This is a question about marriage at the resurrection uh, by this group called the Sadducees. They're kind of a rival uh, religious group to the Pharisees. And um, the Sadducees and the Pharisees don't agree on a lot. They have some issues that where they are significantly divided. But one of the things that they do agree on is that they're both against Jesus. And so they, they are both coming at Jesus with these questions. And they ask this question. We're not going to go into that, all right, because it, it involves a lot more time, okay? Uh, if you want to talk about that later, come talk to me. I'd love to talk to you about that. It's pretty interesting. But then the third question is the one that we get here. And the Pharisees try Again, finding that the Sadducees had been silenced, the Pharisees got together and they asked this question. An expert in the law tested Jesus and said, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Again, what they're trying to do is to set this trap. And this trap is getting Jesus to emphasize one piece of the law over another. And regardless of what Jesus is going to say, they're going to find some kind of fault in that. And so wherever Jesus puts his focus, we've all heard about whataboutism, right? Okay, that's how the internet operates now. Okay, if you say that you care about this one thing, then people are like, well, why don't you care about all of these others? You're a terrible person, okay? <laughs> and so it's that kind of setup for Jesus. So whatever Jesus is going to say, they're going to say he's ignoring these other important things. And Jesus in his brilliance and Jesus in his genius. Once again, carves out they set up this false dichotomy but jesus carves out a better narrow way and he doesn't just avoid a trap he reveals a deeper truth and he answers the greatest commandment is love the lord your god with all your heart and with all your soul with all your mind with all your strength this is the first and the greatest commandment and the second is like it to love your neighbor as yourself all of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. Jesus, help us today as we walk through this together. We want to hear your heart. We want to hear your words. 
Our eyes are on you. Our hearts are on you. We honor again the brilliance in your teaching and the fact that it's not just your way of thinking, but it's the authority of who you are that gives so much meaning to what we're reading today. Thank you for who you are. We love you. We surrender ourselves to you. We want to follow you. We want to be your people. We've been rescued by you. We've been redeemed by you. We want to continue to be shaped by you as we walk in discipleship to you. Teach us today and shape us today through the power of your word. See your name we pray. Amen. 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 So, we get these brilliant answers that Jesus gives, not just to avoid a trap, but to reveal the truth. And it climaxes here at this moment with the greatest commandment. The greatest commandment. Beautifully tying all of the law together. When we first hear this, this sounds so simplistic, doesn't it? And it often gets reduced to that. It's so simplistic, but it's not simplistic. There's a difference between between it being simple and it being simplistic, right? There's a difference between it being simple and it being easy. And what we get in this is we see the brilliance of Jesus. There's a saint uh, in the history of the church, St. Teresa of Avila. And she says, the closer one draws to God, the more simple they become. The closer one draws to God, the more simple they become. Again, not simplistic, but seeing the beauty in that. Or as another one of my favorite saints recently put it, I've learned to love the mystery of it all. I've learned to love the mystery of it all, to embrace the mystery of the simplicity of the life of Jesus and his teachings. That saint, by the way, is my grandmother who's sitting over there right now. That's Mama. Amazing. You don't want me to do this, but I'm going to do this real quick, okay? This is a letter that Mama gave to me today. This is the June letter for this year. I've gotten one of these every single month for the last 14 years. She helped pray this place into existence. And she's given financially. And she's given so much more than that. Thank you. Beautiful. So this command is simple, but it's so deep. It's so deep. And if we're not careful, we're going to miss the depth of it or the simplicity of it. It's like the wardrobe to Narnia, right? <laughs> Where from the outside, it looks like something that you can completely get the bearings of. You can completely measure and understand. But once the doors open and once you step inside, once you move more and more and more into the mystery of it, you find this sprawling world. So much to continue to 
explore, and that's the reality of the teachings of Jesus. And we see that here in his core teaching at the heart of it all. And again, he shows his genius and he shows his authority by bringing all of the feast and the fruit of the law and the prophets together into one seed that we can see is bursting with potential harvest. And he's inviting us to step into the simplicity of this and to continue to understand the mystery as it sprawls out around us as we keep pressing into it. Part of the brilliance here is that Jesus gives two commands, not one, right? And again, like we've said, it seems like Jesus is kind of cheating. He's taking a little bit of liberty because he's Jesus and he decides to add an extra command to it. But that's not what is happening. This is two in one because these two cannot be separated from each other. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength with all of who you are. And love your neighbor in the same reckless and radical kind of way. And those two cannot be separated from each other. As we've said over and over again, it's like breathing. Okay, this is Christian breathing. This is kingdom breathing. Which is more important, breathing in or breathing out? <laughs> you cannot just pick one. <laughs> if you're not doing both, pretty soon you will not be doing either. Okay, that's what's happening here. And that's what Jesus is teaching us in this moment. You cannot separate them. They are one in the same. They are two commands in one, and they cannot be separated from each other. Jesus says that together, these commands hold all of the law in place. That these commands fulfill the entire law. And the law for the Jewish people was incredibly complex and at times it could be so burdensome for them but Jesus says that at the heart of the whole law is this beauty to love God with all you are and to love your neighbor as yourself and he says actually it's not just two commands in one it's ten commands in one and if you look at the totality of the ten commandments you can see the way in which these two twin commands fulfill the whole thing. The first four commandments of the Ten Commandments are about loving God with all that you have. And the next six are about loving your neighbor. And so in this brilliant way, he holds the Ten Commandments all together in one. He also says it's not just the law, but the prophets. And the prophets were the people who spoke on behalf of God, that God's word is given to them, and then they share that word with the people. And so for the Jewish people, when they hear this terminology of the law and the prophets, it's this shorthand to mean everything that God has said to his people, the whole thing together. And so Jesus is saying it's not just the law, but it's also the prophets. We find this to be beautiful as well because as you run all the way through the prophets the thing that they're challenging the people about over and over again twin commands two commands in one read through the prophets and over and over again what they're challenging the people to do what they're calling the people to account for is when they fail to love god with all that they have and all that they are and when they fail to love their neighbor as themselves and throughout the prophets, over and over again, they use two words together almost as if they're inseparable. 
Righteousness and justice. Righteousness and justice. You hear it over and over again throughout the prophets. It's like that they belong in the same breath together. And when we think about that idea of righteousness and what it means to be in a right relationship with God, and when we think about that word of justice and what it means to be in a right relationship with others, how could we sum those two up? Righteousness is loving God with all that you are, your whole self. And justice is loving your neighbor as yourself. It's brilliant. And Jesus, in his genius, ties all of this together, all of the law and all of the prophets here in these two commands. That first part of it about loving God with all you have and all you are, it comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 9. And it's this section of scripture that was deeply dear to the Jewish people because it was a part of their daily rhythm of life. It's what's known as the Shema. The word Shema simply means to hear, and that comes from the beginning of this passage in Deuteronomy chapter 6, where it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Impress these commandments on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home or when you walk along the road, when you lie down or when you get up. Write them on your hands and your foreheads. Write them on the door frames and your gates. So as you are going, as you're laying down and getting up, as you're going out and coming back home, walk in this reality of the Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your mind, all your heart, all your strength, all your soul, all of who you are. In fact, it was so dear to them that they ordered their entire lives around this. The Jewish people would pray this in the morning when they first got up to begin their day. They would pray the Shema. And then when they lay down in the evening, they would pray it again. Not just the deep scholars who studied the scripture inside and out, but every common person. No matter who they were or what their profession was, they were taught this was embedded in them and they would book in their days with the Shema. And Jesus, in his brilliance and in his compassion, includes every common person in this by choosing for the first command, the Shema. Something that they would have known deeply. Something that they would have been completely familiar with. They may have seen themselves as not having a grasp of the scriptures in the same way that the religious elite did. But Jesus says you don't have to have all that they have. God has already planted it in you. And in his deep compassion, he chooses something that they all knew by heart. It was ingrained in them. It was a normal part of their lives. And those words that get used there of all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Originally, this is written in Hebrew. The book of Deuteronomy would have been written in Hebrew. When Jesus is quoting it, he's speaking in the everyday language that he would have been speaking in, which is Aramaic. When it gets written down in the Gospel of Matthew, it gets written down in the language of Greek. And now we're reading it today through an English translation. All right. So you see all of the language that it's had to pass through to get to us. And there's a lot of different nuance between what all of these words mean. 
But rather than worry about the different nuance, what we need to focus on is the way in which they all overlap. Regardless of the language that they come from or pass through to get to us, in every one of those settings, they all mean this sense of loving God with your whole self. This all-encompassing, all-orienting kind of love for God. The second part of that, that Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. He pulls that out of Leviticus uh, chapter 19, verse 18. And in there is, is where it makes this statement of love, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. That chapter begins with God saying to his people, be holy because I, the Lord, your God, am holy. So in other words, if your pursuit of holiness, if your outward expression of a holy life leads you to lack love for other people, then you have completely missed the mark. God says, be holy as I am holy. And part of what that looks like is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you're not doing that in the name of protecting your holiness, then you have completely missed the mark. You have completely missed the mark. Done. Okay. Thank you, Donna. If you weren't able to hear that, then she's saying that you as a church family have lived this beautifully. And that at times when she didn't have a home, she found a home with you. And that she knew that God was always with her. But in you, she found a family that has expressed that and has demonstrated that beautifully. 
Thank you for being those kinds of people. Absolutely. It's in this same chapter in Leviticus that God also expands the definition of what it means to love your neighbor. Because in this same chapter is where we get the statement where God challenges his people to treat the foreigner and the stranger as if they were your neighbor. This is in a time and in a culture when people who are seen as foreigners, your, your first impulse towards them was to reject them as enemies and as outsiders and as threats. Not that there's any time that's like that today at all. <laughs> but in that time and in that place, Yahweh says to his people, when the rest of the world sees a foreigner and a stranger as a threat and as an enemy, you will see them as a neighbor because they are mine as well. And not just as a neighbor, but as a brother and a sister. And in this, he commands compassion from his people. And it's absolutely beautiful. This has always been a central thread that has run through Christianity. It's always been the way, carving out the way of Jesus, how to live the way of Jesus in the most practical and everyday and most difficult kind of ways and places. It's not just in the teachings of Jesus, but Paul in his absolutely brilliant theological treatise, Romans, the book of Romans, in Romans 13, 9, he says this, it's all summed up as Jesus taught us Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul goes on in the book of Galatians, in the, in the letter of Galatians, chapter 5, verse 14. Galatians, which forms the foundation of the Reformation. And it says, at the heart of it all is to love your neighbor as yourself. And if you have a problem with the Reformers in history, then the book that some of the Reformers didn't like is the letter of James. <laughs> and James includes it too. So it's all of us. James chapter 2, verse 8. Love your neighbor as yourself. One of the early leaders of the Christian church, the African Bishop Augustine, says that the essence of sin is a disordered love. And then history answers that back and says that the essence of holiness is love of God and love of the neighbor. It's always been the golden thread that holds the whole thing together and Jesus points us to that as one of, of our more recent prophets reminded us right here in the south he said hate cannot drive out hate only love can do that there is no power more transforming than the holy love of God at work in and through his people we're not talking about love as an abstract concept we're talking about the perfect embodiment of perfect love love in flesh and blood the incarnate god whose essence and character is holy love we're talking about jesus who stands at the core of it all today is trinity sunday which means that churches around the world are celebrating this sunday that gets set aside uh, two weeks ago 
We celebrated Ascension Sunday. Last week we celebrated Pentecost Sunday. And this Sunday gets set aside as Trinity Sunday. And we admit that the theology of the Trinity and trying to understand and explore and explain the theology of the Trinity can be difficult at times for us to get our minds around. That's a good thing. We're talking about the essence and the character of God. Who of us thinks that we can get our minds around that? And yet in His grace, we have Jesus standing at the center as the image of the invisible God, the one who demonstrates what it is that we could never understand on our own. And while explaining and exploring the character of God can be daunting, there is something deeply settling about turning our eyes to Jesus. What is God like? Can you trust him? Does he really love you? Is he kind? Is he good? Is he faithful? What is he like? He's shown us what he's like in Jesus. And every time you have a question about the character of God, every time you have a question about the heart of God, I challenge you to continue to go back to the gospel, to explore Jesus again, the image of the invisible God. What is God like? He's like Jesus. He's like Jesus. And he shows us his character in that. At the core of the entire scripture story is Jesus holding the whole thing together. And here in this teaching, Jesus says that at the heart of that story and at the heart of his teaching is this command, this culture of the kingdom, this double pulse of the heartbeat of God to love God with all you have and all you are and to love your neighbor as yourself. Martin Luther said that sin is defined as the heart curved inward on itself. John Wesley answered that holiness is defined as the heart curved outward in holy love of God and neighbor. This is who we are. This is how we're designed to live. And you have lived that so beautifully. For all of its genius here, this teaching of Jesus, for all of its inspiration, for all of its resonance with the world that we long to see become a reality, we have to realize that this does not come from some moment of achieved utopia or spiritual vision or some experience of ecstasy or even from our beloved Sermon on the Mount. We love the Sermon on the Mount. We keep coming back to that over and over again. Jesus sitting on the hillside with the Sea of Galilee there as he teaches in this revolutionary way that turns the world upside down. This sounds like it would be in the Sermon on the Mount, but that's not where we find this teaching from Jesus. We don't find it in that setting. It's in Matthew chapter 22, which means it comes right after Matthew chapter 21. And Matthew chapter 21 opens with the triumphal entry, which is Jesus marching into the last week of his life. It comes after, in Matthew 21, what's known as the temple incident, where Jesus goes into the temple and he begins to flip tables as this protest against the oppression of the poor and the twisted practices of worship. Twisted worship practices that have made it a burden on the poor, that have set up a barrier between the poor and God, and Jesus will not have it. And he goes in and he flips tables. It comes after Matthew chapter 21, which includes this moment where Jesus curses a fig tree. 
kind of a weird moment in the life of Jesus, but he goes up to pick a fig off of this tree. Why? Because the tree is flourishing and blooming with these beautiful leaves, which is an indication that it should have fruit on the branches as well. But once Jesus gets up to it, he recognizes there's no fruit. It's all show and there's no fruit. And Jesus says, this is like the spiritual leadership of my people. And the tree withers because of that prophetic statement. Jesus is challenging the Roman Empire in the triumphal entry. This is treason against the Roman Empire, declaring himself to be king. It's blasphemy to the religious leaders, declaring himself to be the Messiah. He's not holding back. Three controversial moments right back to back and right after on the heels of these firebrand controversial moves. The last week of his life, the cross coming into view. Jesus gets pressure. What's the most important thing? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Love your neighbor in the same reckless and ridiculous way. It's not only that he pulls in every command from the past. But in this moment, he also unleashes and prefigures the ultimate demonstration of divine sacrificial love. And he says, I'm not just commanding you to do this. I'm going to show you what it looks like. And he walks to the cross and he lays down his life. In this beautifully backwards, upside down, great reversal moment of divine love. Is love weak? Sometimes it seems like too simple of an answer. Like, come on, you got to give me something deeper than that. Keep pressing in. Keep following Jesus. When you see these false dichotomies being set up, follow Jesus into this better, narrow way that he carves that is deeper than either of the options that is getting laid out by the people around you. Is love weak? It's strong enough to drive God himself to become willingly weak, to be crucified on a cross in order to conquer the power of sin and death in order to pursue you to hell and back in order to bring you into this upside down beautifully backwards self-giving love kind of kingdom that he has come to establish here it is it's right at the core this twin lens love god with all you are love your neighbor as yourself and he invites us to see it all through that but how do we do that? How do we actually live out this way of life? How do we do that in a way that's sustainable, that doesn't burn us all out and drag us all down with compassion fatigue? How do we actually do that? There's only one way. And that is to come to terms with the reality of love. 
that when Jesus is commanding you to love him and to love your neighbor, he's also empowering that through the love that he is pouring out on you. And so this is my last sermon at Love Chapel Hill. And I know it sounds like that I'm using my last sermon with this challenge, one more challenge to love God and to love your neighbor. But that's actually all been building up to what I want to say right now. Because really my last challenge for you is not to love God and to love your neighbor. My last word that I want to give to you is a reminder that you are already loved. That you are loved. That he loves you so much that he became like you. He came here. He took on flesh and blood to experience every kind of pain like we have experienced. To suffer and to wrestle, to be rejected, to be betrayed, to enjoy life with good friends, and then to be hurt by some of those same friends. Only to turn around and extend forgiveness to them. To continue that covenant relationship. He loves you so much. He laid down his life for you. To open up the better narrow way. To invite you into covenant love with him. He loves you. That is the last word that I would like to leave with you and to remind you and to challenge you through the rest of your life to continue to come to terms with the reality of love. It's too late. You're already loved. Come to terms with it. He loves you. I want to thank you. Love Chapel Hill. There's so many things. There's no way that I could put it into words today. And I will confess that as I've been leading up to this day, there's so much joy about what we've been through together and what we've experienced together. And there's so much sadness for me too. And I think that's a good thing. And I'm glad that we can hold both of those together. And I'm glad that I'm experiencing a depth of grief because it's a reminder of how much love we have for each other. I'm so grateful for you. I could never put it into words, but as I'm standing here today and I'm looking out at you, I just want you to know that you are a dream come true. You will always be a reminder to me that God hears the deepest prayers of our hearts. And that he has the power to bring those into reality. This morning I took one more walk down to the well and sat down on the same bench where I sat before our very first worship gathering as a church. And prayed one more time before this thing got started. 
And you're the answer to those prayers. I'll never be able to thank you. And I love you so much. Sarah and Luke and Sam, thank you for serving and leading and giving in ways that nobody else will ever know or see, but I promise you I see it. I'm so grateful. Thank you. There's so many stories that I've been thinking back through. So many stories that I wanted to tell today, but I just feel like I need to settle and land on these last things here. To remind you that you are loved. You are so loved. That love isn't just your name. And love isn't only your mission. But love is who you are. And love is who you will continue to become. And I cannot wait to see how you live that out. Close out this morning, we're going to share in communion. Where Jesus, on his last night with his friends, infused new meaning into this meal that they had shared together before and revealed to them the reality of love.
this journey that we've been on together in this beautiful way around the person of Jesus and around the way that he gave us to remember him. Come, the King's table.